the thing that is all too often underrated is proper research. If you do a good brand survey, you can get the consumer to tell you what they want. They, they can give you a blueprint if you know how to use this information. Hey there, James here, and you're listening to the Own The Moment podcast, the show where we explore the complex and always evolving landscape of marketing, advertising, and branding, and try to get to the bottom of what it means to be a truly memorable brand. The On The Moment podcast is brought to you by Como Technologies, a self-service, complete customer engagement platform that helps you cut through the noise to truly connect with your customers and retain and grow those connections over time. With Como, you can build and deploy new campaigns, activations, promotions, and programs in days, not months. And our software is used by some of the world's biggest consumer brands from Heineken to Budget, Goodman Fielder, Foxtel, JLL, Williams Racing, and McDonald's. Learn more at como.tech. Today's guest is John Lyons, a business director at Gasp, one of the most interesting agencies going around. John has spent a career in brand loyalty and consumer promotions and has designed programs for the likes of Lego, Hasbro, and Manchester United. We explored why most brand loyalty is nothing more than inertia and laziness, the two biggest mistakes brands make when designing loyalty programs, and what it would take for John to abandon his favorite toilet paper brand, a sentence I never thought I'd utter on this podcast. John was a great guest with a ton of engaging war stories and learnings from his long career in marketing. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. John Lyons, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure, James. Really looking forward to it. I want to start with the first question, which is, is brand loyalty real or is it just something we talk about in marketing teams and, and boardrooms? Oh, boy. Um, okay, so you've started it. You've started nice and easy. <laughs> it is. It is real. Um, I think the, the, the key thing with brand loyalty is that it's not the same as human relational loyalty. So there, there is no monogamous loyalty to brands. Uh, even even the most loved brands in the world, and as you know, kind of you know, my last role was at one of the most loved brands in the world, Lego. There is no monogamous loyalty. People who buy Lego will buy Playmobil, but that doesn't mean they're not loyal to that brand. So there, I believe there is brand mm. loyalty. I don't think it's necessarily the case that all brand loyalty is built on anything other than inertia. Some of it is. Um, you know, hmm. I, I will buy the same brand of chewing gum every time I go into a store. It's not because I love that brand. It's not because I feel any connection to the brand, but I know that brand is going to give me what I need. And so, and that's fine hmm. you know, from, a, from a marketing perspective, that for me works as loyalty. You know, when, I, when I go and buy clothes, I think more about the brands I choose say something about me. So there is more of a connection there. Hmm. And I think with, with, with um, yeah, it was something like like Lego, for example, or, or even something like Nike. And I'm not I'm not a sportswear, I'm not a sports brand wearer. I'm mm. an old guy these days, but um, yeah, <laughs> that people do buy into that brand and that they feel a connection to the brand above and beyond just walking into a sneaker store and picking something up and it happening to be Nike. Yeah, it's interesting. You had this. I found this quote um, on your LinkedIn. You said, "You know, loyalty isn't for all categories and it isn't for all brands, but when done well, you know, it can be killer." And I think that's interesting. There, you know, maybe there's something. You know, maybe we can unpack that a little uh, a little bit. There's something you said there around sort of the identity piece, or I don't know. You know, we 
we had a webinar uh, just this week actually in Sydney about loyalty and one of the things we talked about was right belief and belonging and you know maybe for a lot of people right you know Lego most probably with their children um, you know plays some sort of central role in in, in that part of their lives and, and, you know, maybe you could say the same for sports brands and Nike, but right to use your example with chewing gum, you know, is it possible to build loyalty in those sort of, I don't know what we want to call them, you know, th- those categories where maybe that identity piece is sort of less less obvious. What's your view on that? Can, can you build loyalty in, I don't know, toilet paper, shampoo, chewing gum? 100%, but I think you need to start from the basis of what is loyalty. And when you're talking about, I guess, products that aren't necessarily part of your lifestyle or how you want to project yourself. Loyalty is repeat purchase from a, from a pure mm. um, statistical marketing perspective. So I am, funnily enough, I am loyal to my, my, my toilet paper brand. <laughs> I buy the same brand every single time because I know what I'm getting. I think, I think for most consumers, and the whole point of branding and the whole point of marketing is to, to shortcut decision making. So if right. I'm if I'm stood in the, the toilet paper aisle, here we go. We're, we're talking toilet paper. Today, James, <laughs> um, if I'm stood in in the toilet paper aisle, rather than me having to investigate every package and have a look at the pros and cons, all the rational reasons for purchasing, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go for the one that I know does the job I like. I'm a Cushel man, so. I, I know that that's going to fill the way I want it to fill. I know it's going to, um, <laughs> I'm not going to put my finger through it at the wrong moment. Um, so I am loyal to that brand. I will buy that every single time. Other than here today and right now, does it represent anything to do with my lifestyle? No, you've made me do it here. But yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to be out there kind of championing the cause or wearing Cushel sneakers or, or kind of baseball caps. But it's my choice. It's my go-to choice. I am loyal to that brand. Yeah, with, with a lot of these non-lifestyle or non-projective um, brands or products, it's not like you're not going to buy a rival brand if your brand isn't there. So right. if I go into the supermarket and Cushel isn't there, there's two or three other brands that I know will be fine. When it's there, so when you've got the physical availability, that's what I will buy. And yeah, I, I've said in the past, kind of, um, I, I'm, I'm a diabetic. Um, when I go into a store, I'm in a cafe and I want something to drink. I know that the, the silver tin with the red like, little ribbon on it, the Diet Coke is going to satisfy my needs. There have been times when I was getting used to being a diabetic where I'd pick up something forgetting that it's sugar based. Mm. So I know exactly where I'm going for Diet Coke. If I'm thirsty and they don't have Diet Coke, I'll buy a Diet Pepsi. I'll buy a water. I'll buy a cup of tea. So it's not like I'm going to miss out i'm not that loyal as i would be to a partner or you know a a family member or a friend that i'm Mm. not going to go elsewhere but it will be my default go-to that's really really interesting do you see i mean obviously you know on your side of the world in the agency world do you see brands in some of those i like that way of putting it sort of non-lifestyle non-projective brands have you seen an uptick in those sorts of brands wanting to pursue i guess more of that you know identity-based purpose-driven branding work yes yes but i don't necessarily go along with it i think um it's very easy to look at other brands or other categories and say i want some of that but again not to not to not to understand that that that's not really the needs of your consumer and yeah it's one of the things um you know i've been agency side and client side in my career but certainly Mm. agency side so many agencies are are looking at clients and um 
I guess, project types that suit their business. So one right. of the things that, that every agency I've been at looks at, okay, what, what's, what's our, what's our um, percentage of retained rather than project-based business? And at the end of the day, that might work for us. That might be the best outcome for an agency. Of course, it is to know what you've got coming up. But it's not necessarily what our clients need. So I, I've not, I wouldn't say I've worked on loyalty programs where they've been misplaced, but I've seen plenty where people have gone, oh, okay, we, we want loyalty. That, that buys people in, that gets us data, that gets repeat purchase. Let's do a loyalty program for our chewing gum. It's just not going to make a massive difference. I mean, one thing I will say is that loyalty programs, the positives of loyalty programs, and we're talking programs rather than the concept of loyalty, aren't necessarily just transactional. There's there's data, there's building up marketing databases, there's all sorts of positive outcomes for it, which you know is, is a great thing. But if you're looking at loyalty and a loyalty program or a loyalty scheme as a way of generating more recurring income, you need you really need to consider your category and you really need to consider your brand. Yeah. Because it's not going to be for everyone. And ultimately the most important thing is Byron Sharp's physical availability. If I can't pick up the thing that you want me to be loyal to, loyal to where I no- normally do my shopping, I'm not going to buy it. It's funny. I had Tom Goodwin on the um, on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I asked him, you know, what what does he think the most sort of underrated trend in marketing was? And I'll ask you that question later on. And he said, you know, just making it easy to buy stuff. And it's like such a sort of such a simple. But, you know, really right when you sort of, you know, and, and the way he described it with, you know, even if you just go and look at sort of, you know, ads on Instagram nowadays, I mean, a lot of them, you know, it's not that easy to go and buy the thing that you're looking at. So I think that was a great insight. So, John, you've worked on loyalty programs for brands like Lego, Hasbro, and, you know, even sports teams like Manchester United, which is really exciting. Um, what are the characteristics then of really successful programs? What are the sort of elements and and, and key, I guess, yeah, characteristics of, of when it works? I mean, I... This is going to sound kind of um, fairly obvious, but I think the first thing is is you know, to be honest with yourself about how people purchase your brand. So if if we look at Lego with Hasbro, I worked on Nerf perks, um, so Nerf blasters. Uh, yeah. Manchester United was it was more of a CRM than a loyalty specific thing, but similar. Mm. And, and it's it's looking at your audience and understanding them and not hiding from the data. So what we knew at the Lego Group is that. It is more than just a one-off purchase. So yes, there are lots of other players in the market. Nobody is monogamous. Um, Jerry Dakin, who I know quite well, is a huge Lego fan. And actually, I, I, I spoke to him before I before I interviewed for the role at Lego. But he also buys Playmobil. You know, he's a collector. He he likes things, and we know that that was, we knew that that was the case at Lego. So it's a collectible. It's slightly different from pretty much anything else I think in the market. In that. Every piece of Lego that you've ever owned will go will work with every piece of Lego that you will ever buy. Right. So yes, there are sets, but it's it's kind of as far away from single use plastic as you're ever going to get. You can you could build and rebuild and, and constantly recycle it. So that's not the case for kind of almost every other brand in many right. ways. But there are reasons why people buy it. There are people. There are things that um, people buy into. And interestingly, you mentioned earlier about kind of you know playing with your kids. Actually, the the majority of of money spent on Lego is adults buying from themselves. No, and that that sprung up massively during lockdown, as you can imagine. It's 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 a three D three D puzzle. It's it's a way of um, 
satisfying your your creativity. It's a way of killing time, and you have something great looking after it. And you know, here's me pointing over my shoulder at a whole bunch of Lego stuff that I've built. Some by myself, <laughs> some with my son. But it's yeah, you know, it it gives you more than just the product. And and again, if if you look at if you look at Nerf, there's not just a single blaster. There's the pellets. There's all sorts of things with Nerf. And and interestingly, on on that program, you know, the, the agency I was at launched that program several years ago. And at that time, what Hasbro had was a very popular product that they were not selling direct to consumer, of course. It, it, Lego, Lego Group do. They have their own stores as well as selling through retail chains. But they they didn't really have a full understanding of what their customer base was, what their wants and needs were. And part of the reason for, for, for them commissioning Nerf Perks was to get a better understanding and, and a first... Um, you know, kind of first first point of contact with their consumer base. And they learned so much about it. As an example, you'd probably expect 13-year-old kids and frat boys. that they, They're going to be people that buy Nerf. What we found was that one of the most prolific buyers was um, a, a middle-aged lawyer. And that wasn't an unusual pattern. But you don't know that unless you're either speaking, I say speaking, but connecting one-to-one with the consumer mm. or doing really good research so so the outcomes are really important and obviously with, with, with Manchester United it's um people buy into their sports clubs in a way that they don't necessarily with um CPG brands but even then you know I'm, I'm not a Manchester United fan I now have an affinity with Manchester United having worked with them and uh you know made some really good friends there but I will watch my team and care I'll watch other games because I like football so again, it's not monogamous. Even with that really passionate thing that people do understand, and people have talked about kind of fandoms in terms of sport as opposed to brands, even with sport, you will still watch the sport if your team isn't involved. So getting away from this idea that brand loyalty is anything like relational loyalty is the first step. And then understanding what it is your customers or, or, or your fans want and need from this connection is is crucial. Mm, that's really, really interesting. So let's say, you know, okay, so brands that do fit the bill in terms of categories. So, you know, maybe sort of removing, yeah, a lot of the CPG and things like we've talked about. What, you know, even in the right category, what mistakes have you seen, you know, brands and marketers and creatives and agencies make when designing loyalty programs? So what are the common missteps in these programs? I mean, I, I think there's probably two that really stand out. Number one is overestimating, just overestimating how much the customer, the consumer cares. Um, uh, ultimately, most of us don't walk around thinking about brands all day. I mean, we, we do in our <laughs> industry, let's be honest. You know, we, we walk around yeah. thinking about brands and we'll obsess over brands. And the way that I will wander the aisles in a supermarket isn't the way that a normal <laughs> human being would wander the aisles of a supermarket uh, because right. I've, I've got my market to rise on. So overestimating the, 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 the degree of, of the connection. But I, I think kind of on a tactical level, the, the thing that I've seen several times is thinking that a loyalty program is a way of shifting product that people aren't willing to spend their money on. Huh. So, you know, I've worked on campaigns in the past where we've had to explain to the client, you know, if, if people aren't buying that, they're not going to then you know, convert their, their, their points that they're getting for purchasing your brand on this. They don't want it. Nobody right. wants this thing. right. Uh, so it, it's it's yeah it, it really is getting into the mindset of what the consumer wants 
what they're going to put up with and what matters to them rather than just starting with what, what matters to the business. And yeah, I think probably the, the thing, the thing with loyalty is I, I, I find that quite often brands will come to the, the point of, we want a loyalty scheme without thinking about what question it's ask, answering. Mm. Why do you want it? What is it you're looking to achieve? Think, think of that before deciding that loyalty is the way forward. And as I said before, some, some brands, some categories it works with, you know, um, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of malt whiskey. Um, you know, I, I have my favorites, but I will buy various single malt whiskies from time to time. And I've been to distilleries. I've been to my favorite distilleries. You buy into, you buy beyond just the product. And so that's a category where I think it can work. Uh, Lego obviously is a category where I think it can work. Nothing is going to change my buying pattern in, in terms of my toilet paper, however loyal I am. And I'm, I'm loyal. <laughs> I, I love that little koala, but nothing's <laughs> going to make me buy more of that toilet paper. That's really, really interesting. Um, John, I want to shift from loyalty to promotions. You founded an agency that was eventually acquired by a global um, promotional marketing agency, and then later you became a sales and marketing director there, and the, um, the agency was NDL. So, you know, promotions is obviously something that's, you know, very close to our hearts here at Como. So, you know, I'm curious to know where you think we're at today in in terms of sort of digital promotions, what's working, what's not working, what's changed in the world that is shifting how brands should think about, I guess, short-term promotions and, and activations today? What, what's the state of the union? Well, I mean, I, I, th- I think one of the really interesting things there is that marketing science would appear to tell us that promotions are not good. But actually, good promotional marketers understand that we can work within the realms of Ehrenberg Bass and come up with a good promotion. Mm. So and, and I, I saw something recently and um, where there was a promotion designed to highlight a new range and the prize was the new range. Yeah, to, and that, that has never made any sense to me. You, you're, you're basically putting people off from buying it because they think they might win it. Right. So yeah. Understanding that, you know, how can we connect to people in a way that is relevant to the brand and relevant to them with the promotion? So prize promotions rather than price promotions for me are, are far more important, far more effective. And, you know, the, the, the last agency I was at, NDL, well, the last promotions agency, the NDL group, they've built a fantastic brand off of the back of prize and winner management. Mm. Yeah, they, 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 in the UK, certainly, that they, they created the category of prize and winner management. And everything is about making sure that whichever brand you are, when you run a promotion, your customers go away having the best experience possible. You know, it's, it's white glove treatment, um, it's, you know, it's travel, it's money can't buy prizes, and, and ultimately it's, it's kind of leaving everyone with such a great feeling about the brand, but not giving them the thing that we're promoting because that stops people spending money. Yeah. So, and, and you know, with, with digital promotions, it's, it's fascinating because it doesn't really change the model. It doesn't change how humans think, but it does affect the speed and it affects the volume and, and it affects the model. You know, there are things that you can do with, with digital that you just couldn't really do successfully offline. So, you know, things like um, UGC, user generated content, right. giving people the opportunity to, let's say, upload a design. And, and going back to our, our kind of talk about the uh, the toilet paper, uh, I, NDL group, I, I worked with um, a brand called uh, Regina Blitz. And it's it's a household paper. So it's 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 not 
kitchen roll it's more than that it's kind of yeah it's a brilliant brilliant product and it's one that's the the minute i got my hands on it i've, I've never stopped buying it because i'm a nerd <laughs> like that but um but again if i walk in the supermarket and they don't have it i'll buy plenty we we did we did uh, a number of promotions around christmas where we gave people the opportunity to design the christmas wrapping and it brought people into it. it and you know they got the chance to win the best christmas so that there was i don't know whatever the, the fund was the prize fund yeah at ndl we we called them up we helped them spend their money in the way that was best for them. Yeah, whether that was having a, a, a six-foot uh, Christmas tree from, from Norway or buying lots of presents, decorating the house, cleaning the house, getting everything prepared for the best Christmas you can have. So that's about building memories and it's about you know building um, positive associations with the brand rather than mm. giving stuff away. And, and yeah, really that kind of thing or referral mm. friend get friend particularly on on social you know it's it's very easy to kind of have a, a a campaign where you know if you like this and share share with a friend and they like it you both get something and it's amplified so we, we get the amplification effect of, of promotions as well so i think it's really that engaging the consumer and finding a way finding a way to almost make them a, a brand ambassador even though that's a kind of slightly wanky term <laughs> But you know, we're 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 giving we're we're in enabling them to share positively about the brand. Yeah, and I think there's a bunch of a bunch of other things there. You know, things like zero party data, first party data. Obviously, you know, we all know sort of you know that that whole world is shifting. And you know, I think Google have finally committed to killing off third party cookies next year. And so I think you know, right, bringing bringing consumers in and having them sort of participate in you know sharing preferences, feedback, whatever it might be, I think is really really interesting. And so, you know, you've obviously done a lot of work with retail um, over the years and, and, you know, obviously NDL um, was big in that world. You know, wh what is it about retail that you love and why is it such a compelling area to work in uh, marketing wise? I guess packaged goods and, and retail more generally. I mean, I, I, I think part of it is that it's, it's, it's kind of so raw and so challenging. I mean, mm -mm. You, you can literally walk into a store and watch people make their decisions. In B2B, you don't get that opportunity. We, right. we know in B2B, people will, nine times out of 10, they'll sit there and do some desk research. And yeah, of course you can do research in that. And a lot of the work I do now at Gasp is, is um, quite a lot of it is, is based on, on B2B marketing. And, and it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. But being able to just walk into a store and look at all of the options that a consumer might be able to make in a particular category. So, um, yeah, well, we talked about toilet paper earlier. Let's stick to toilet paper. It's, it's, the, it's the classic example that people use when putting down loyalty. Uh, but if you walk in the toilet paper aisle, you can see all of the brands there. Mm. You can see what stands out, what don't stand out, and you can watch consumers make their choices. And nine times out of 10, the choice is made before they get there, right. which is Aaron Bobas's um, mental availability. Mm. And, and likewise for me, my choice is made before I get there, unless if they don't have it, at which point mm. I'm stuck. Mm. That's not the case for all categories. Snacks, potentially. I'll browse and I'll have a look to see if there's anything that's kind of slightly more interesting. Not everybody does this. Mm. And, and maybe this is because I'm a marketer and I, and I, I love the idea of retail. But you know, I'll, I'll spend more time looking at some categories than mm. others and... Um, you know, one of the things that has always driven my family kind of mad is when, whenever we're abroad or in a store that we maybe don't have access to locally, I'll, I'll disappear and I'll be wandering the aisles just looking at stuff and people. Mm. And that's why I love retail. You mm. see the stuff, you see the people, and you see all of the things that we as marketers spend our lives 
uh, poring over and you know, obsessing over, you kind of see it out there in the battlefield and you see how minute a difference all of that makes. But that minute difference can, to the bottom line, make all the mm. difference. And so, you know, you, 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 you're watching the battle in play, and I, I love that. I find that fascinating. I've always been a people watcher. Mm. Watching people make their choices mm. and seeing actually how, how few choices they really make in retail as opposed to before they even get there, and subconsciously, more often than not as well, uh, fascinates me. Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, going back to this idea of availability and making it easy to buy and sort of, you know, making choices in the supermarket, you know, what other tips do you have for brands, you know, in that in those categories for, you know, h- how should brands think about being easy to buy or maybe not just easy to buy, but maybe the other side of that, which is sort of interesting, jumping off the shelf, standing out. What, what, what are the sort of tactics and tools I mean, the, the, the reality is that most purchase decisions are made way before people get to the aisle. And so, yeah, it's, it's um, Bennett and Phil talk about the long and the short and uh, yeah, the long being kind of brand marketing and making that mental availability, you know, putting in the mind that a particular product will be the answer to whatever it is you need when you need something from that category. So category entry points. Yeah. So it, it, it all starts in the brain. It all starts way in the brain. And, you know, kind of when I go back to my early career as a digital marketer, you know, you're able to track so much and you, you end up obsessing about it. But actually the digital funnel doesn't start digitally. Mm. It, no, no funnel starts digitally. It all starts up here. So, you know, what 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 is in my mind? How can we get in someone's mind that when they... I'm not going to go into the, the toilet paper example because that will get quite grim. <laughs> but let's talk about um, yeah, soft drink. So, you know, let's go back to me and Diet Coke. Yeah, I already know when I want something to drink when I'm out and I, maybe it's not an alcoholic drink or maybe it's not a hot drink. You know, those are slightly different things. And sometimes you fancy a hot drink. Here I am with my coffee. Um, sometimes you fancy an alcoholic drink. Last night I was out getting hammered. Um, <laughs> but if I'm thirsty... The first thing I would look for normally is a Diet Coke. Mm. That deal is already done. It's only when it's not there that I then look for the alternative. Sure. So it's making the connection with consumers before they even get to the purchase decision that your brand, your product is a suitable option. And that's the first step is, is honestly just making sure that people connect your brand to that category entry point. If I don't see, um, if I don't see Diet Coke as, as an option when I'm thirsty, I'm not going to buy it when I'm thirsty. And it's it's kind of everything before you get to the aisle that builds that kind of connection. And then when you try it and you like it, then that's kind of where you start to build a bit of a habit and maybe maybe loyalty or repeat purchase. Mm. Can, can that only be done, that sort of mental availability, can that only be achieved via sort of the long of it, you know, brand? Or, you know, talk me through how, how, how should brands think about sort of building that availability? Is it, like I said, is it only brand that can can get you there primarily is however there are there are some you know there are short-term tactics and promotional tactics that that can and do work so you know one one of the best tactics out there is sampling right if you've got a new product in a category that people don't know don't recognize don't consider as an option sampling is a way of of testing their their well, I guess testing the taste in some ways. Mm, um, and mm. I, I was um, actually funnily enough last week, 
I was judging the, the Alliance of Independent Agency Awards and the, the category that I was working on was promotional techniques. And uh, yeah, some of the some of the best ones in there were sampling. And it's it's about getting people at the right time and giving the, um, them the opportunity to, I guess, create a new mental connection to a brand. And, and sampling is a great way of doing that. I, I'm not a great believer in discounting. You, you have to do it sometimes, you know, and, and mm. normally when, as a brand, when you have to do it, it's, it's to earn shelf space. It's to play nicely with the retailers because ultimately if you don't have the retailers, you don't have that physical availability. But if there's a promotion that will catch people's eye and just one time only get them to try a different brand that they will then maybe add to their, their, um, the, 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 the kind of category set or their, their short list in the category, then that, mm. that's a way of kind of getting ahead of the game without just the brand building. But having said that, if, if that happens two years ago and they see nothing of your brand in between and they don't just see it on the shelf, you've lost that kind of connection in the first place. So it, it really is, you know, when I talked about not being monogamous, loyalty not being monogamous, I should say, rather than <laughs> um, when I about loyalty not being monogamous, it's most people will have, whether they realise it or not, a, a kind of um, a short list of things that they will buy from a category. And you might have your preference. Some people will call that loyalty. Some people will say it's not, but I think it is. Yeah, Diet Coke is my preference. Uh, if they don't have that, I'm a diabetic, so I'm not going to go full-fat Coke. I might go Diet Pepsi. I might go water. I might go tea. You know, there, there are all these options. You know, kind of um, Seven Up free and you know Sprite Zero or Seven Up Zero, whichever way they are. But I, I've got I've got that kind of category shortlist in my mind. And what you want to do as a brand is be part of that first. If you're not considered as part of that, then you've got no chance of winning in the category. So you know, sampling is a great way of doing that. Price promotions is a great way of doing that. If you have to do a price promotion it can get you there to start with, but there's not a great deal of evidence that it will keep people on board if that's all you're doing. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think for me, all of that just speaks to the power of the long and the short of it as an as an insight. I mean, it's really sort of just such a powerful yet so simple idea that seems to make a lot of sense. John, I'd like to move on to the um, the quick fire round and, and start with a question, which is, what is your favorite marketing campaign of all time? That I've worked on, or just in general? Uh, in general. Oh well, wow. um, I mean, one that's absolutely blown me away, and it's fairly recent, and I wasn't involved with it, but I've been—I'm a convert—is um, Yorkshire tea. So uh, Yorkshire tea in the UK, you know, we're, we're British. We drink a lot of tea, right? So, um, and forever, there's been two brands. And they dominated the market to the extent that they kind of didn't need to do much and they dominate the market. And then suddenly out of nowhere, this upstart Yorkshire tea came about and um, the, the way that they positioned themselves as, as it's a property. So Yorkshire's got this whole thing of, uh, you know, it's Yorkshire, it's straightforward. It's mm. takes no nonsense. And they had these brilliant campaigns that, that, continue to today that uh, you know they've used celebrity but they've used it in such a way that it's kind of broke through and told a story and it's now number one in the category yeah can you imagine going from nowhere to number one in the category particularly that kind of category in this kind of country this kind of um, Mm. you know kind of um, consumer base but it's been i wouldn't say relentless because that sounds negative but it's been consistent and they've built this consistent kind of volume where now people would just assume that Yorkshire tea has always been the, the go-to tea. And it's not. It's, it's kind of new. 
but it's been amazing the way that they've done that. And it's, um, yeah, I, I've just been massively impressed by that. And um, I mean, I'm drinking coffee right now, but when I'm in the office, I drink Yorkshire tea. I think that's a that's a fantastic example. It reminds me of, we had um, Jamie Pete on from McCann, who's worked with Aldi for many years on the podcast. And he was, you know, got, uh, sort of almost telling a similar story about sort of Aldi and um, how they used, you know, I think we even called the episode the, the power of perfect positioning to, you know, right to go from sort of, you know, I think, less than 2% to over 10% market share in 20 years in, in like an extremely mature and well-established uh, category. So it's the, a testament to great, to great marketing. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing category where Aldi and you know, obviously Lidl is, is the other competitor, but they, they've, they've absolutely demolished the lazy, and I'm going to call it lazy mm. or, yeah, maybe that's unfair. It probably isn't lazy, but I guess kind of um, yeah. comfortable position in the category of, of, the, of the market leaders, and they, they've gone from nowhere to huge. And one of the things that I've I found fascinating um, over the last few years, and sorry, Jamie, this isn't this isn't Aldi, it's little, but um, you know, over here in the UK, you know, we, we we we've never really had a, an advertising Super Bowl. You know, that that one big event that they have in the US, and all the advertisers are there, and the whole industry watches it until John Lewis started Christmas advertising. And that's become our Super Bowl. And what's interesting is, and you know, I, John Lewis decided to change agencies and that's um, a questionable decision from my perspective, but that they, they invented the category. They've had great success for it. Little have come in and, and Aldi have come in and they, they, they found ways of, of reworking that. So actually we've gone from John Lewis winning Christmas every year to, to Kevin the Carrot winning Christmas every year because there's there's been an opportunity to change the narrative and to have a different perspective and just barge through and be brave and bold and it's it's been fantastic success couldn't agree more what's the most overrated trend in marketing right now oh, it's ai <laughs> it's ai it's it's funny because i mean i i quite like it um i think it's, it's useful um i think it can be fun I, I i was invited to uh talk at an event on creativity and um stupidly i i connected them with Andy Nairn from Lucky Generals, who is not just a super talented um, guy, but is an amazing speaker. So I don't know if you've ever seen him speak, but he is stunning. Mm. Uh, get him on the pod. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of connected the the organisers with him, and then they asked me to speak as well. I'm like, shit, I'm speaking with on the same... I'm, I'm basically on the undercard of Andy Nairn. What am I going to do? So I kind of thought, well, the only thing I can do is to just be... just to flip it. So I've gone to this um, talk on creativity and my, my, my talk was, was um, I called it um, creativity is dead because what else am I going to do? But what was funny was, yeah, and, and I kind of built this whole thing of here's what, here's what the, the traditional heroes of advertising and marketing say about marketing science and here's what the marketing scientists do. And then obviously tie it all up at the end and, you know, marketing science makes the, cre- mm. the case for creativity. Um, but I had a play with um, ChatGPT to get some quotes. So I was like, okay, I want to get some anti-science marketing quotes. And I got some brilliant quotes. And then I went into mid-journey and I kind of uploaded images of the, these heroes, you know, Dave Trott and, um, you know, kind of George Lois. I've, I've uploaded these and I've created these di- images of them kind of kind of represented as as the past, which did not, but, you know, that, that, was the, that was the narrative. Only to then, at the last minute, the day before the talk, think, oh, I better double check those quotes and found out that none of them were real. Mm. Chat GPT had invented the quotes, but what I got were some brilliant images that mm. really broke through in the talk and kind of 
helped create that. And you know, there are people talking about everyone's jobs are going to be at risk with with AI, which I, I personally don't believe. I, I, you know, to me, AI it has the potential to be a fantastic labor saving device. And in the same way that when I first started working in marketing, a lot of my clients were in entertainment, um, kind of you know, cinema, uh, DVD, probably VHS back then. And a lot of the artwork was hand paintings, right. kind of those really cheesy hand paintings and stuff. You don't get that anymore because you don't need it. And I think we're going to see similar with, with, with AI where, you know, kind of there's just better ways to do things, but it's not going to take away the creative. It's going to become a labor saving device, but there's so much talk about it at the moment. And every day you see half a dozen things on LinkedIn telling us here are the 10 reasons that your life is going to change and you need to, you, you need to get out of Dodge. Nah, not having it. No, no, it was funny. I actually was just before we started recording, I saw, I think it was on Campaign Live, someone started an, an agency now in the UK, sort of a, you know, a generative AI agency. And I thought, yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting to see how that will fare, you know, 12 months on. Yeah. I don't know if any of the metaverse agencies are. Well, I mean, it's one of those, if they get in first, they might be able to cash in, you know. And that, that, yeah, that- look, I'm sure they will. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I guess, you know, it's, 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 you know, funny looking back on sort of the metaverse trend over the last 12 yeah. months. And, you know, I love the fact that we're looking back at the metaverse. I think, right. A lot of money, a, a lot of money was made. Oh, totally. And, and yeah, we're looking back at it. It never happened. It might happen, but it's, it's not actually happened, but we're looking back at it. It's, you know, and I, I'm old enough to kind of been, been around and working in digital during the dot-com boom and bust. And, I'm kind. I'm quite old school in terms of my approach, even though you know I start with digital. But I don't understand how this is going to make money. Where's the value for consumers? It has always been my my guiding light. So I probably could have cashed in, yeah, do it doing some of my my early kind of digital stuff, design, web design, whatever it was, building sites, campaigns. I probably could have cashed in and cashed out quite quite early by taking equity in some of the clients. But I just didn't. I just didn't see the longevity in it. And yeah, you know, there are, there are people with better lives than me, richer than me that did well done or that didn't, but yeah, you know, saw the opportunity, but yeah, you know, I always look at these things in terms of, you know, what, why would anybody care? And and if, if it's smoke and mirrors, then I'm, I'm kind of not interested. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very, very noble. Um, all right. On the other side of the coin, then what's the, what's the marketing tactic that no one's talking about? I guess we could frame it as the, the underrated tactic. That's a really good question. And I'm, I'm going to turn it on its head a little bit because I think the underrated tactic isn't the tactic. I think it's it's diagnosis. I, th- I think the thing that is all too often underrated is proper research. Mm. Yeah, if you, if you do a, a good brand survey, if you do a good brand tracking survey, you can you can get the consumer to tell you or you know the consumers to tell you what they want what they want from your brand what they want from the category who they prefer why they prefer them what turns them on what turns them off basically you know they they can give you a blueprint if you know how to use this information it's so straightforward and you know at gasp where i am now that's what we do you know everything we do starts with research and it's the the classic thing kind of you know Neil McElroy's memo was 1931, I think. And yeah, Mm. it introduced kind of brand management and the idea of doing research, then strategy, then tactics. I think too often people just jump straight to tactics. They can work. Don't get me wrong. They can absolutely work. But if if you've done the research, you can fine tune the tactics and get much, much bigger input and, you know, much better outcomes. 
So for me, the, the most important tactic that's not being talked about is not a tactic, it's research. Right. I don't know if you follow John James. He uh, hosts the Champagne Strategy podcast. He, he had a tweet the other day, which I'm just going to read on this. I thought it was brilliant. He said, without constant research fed into the creation of a continuous feedback loop, you're just another marketer churning out content, hoping for a winner. And I think there's a lot to that. Yeah. Last question, John, who is the most interesting marketer in the world right now? Oh boy. Um, it's, it's, I mean, there's, there's kind of a number of players in there for me and, um, you know, it's, it's not the superstar CMOs that, that we've kind of seen and read about and, you know, that go to Cannes every year. Yeah, the, the, the people that fascinate me are the people that are either doing the work or, or shining a light on understanding. So actually, Jenny Romaniak at um, Erebo Bass, um, you know, she, she, she basically championed the, the idea of distinctive assets. But her recent book that I'm going through at the moment is about brand health. It's, it's brand tracking and doing better brand tracking. And I heard her on... Um, <laughs> I heard her on a podcast. I heard her on the podcast that, that my, my agency produces, um, mm. Call to Action. Um, I, I don't get to hear it before it goes out, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, I was listening to it and it blew my little mind. Mm. Um, just just on the podcast, some of the, some of the simple truths that she was putting out there that make such a difference to the outcome. So I'm a huge fan of Jenny. I, I mentioned Andy Nairn earlier. I think, I think mm. the, the work that Lucky Generals do is, is amazing. And um, yeah, when he talks about the work it blows my mind. And the, the other thing that I absolutely idolize Andy for is, you know, he's got a book, uh, Go Luck Yourself. He does lots of talks around that, which he did at the event I was mentioning earlier. He does all of that for a charity called uh, Commercial Break, which is, it's there to make a room for um, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds to get into the creative industries. And, you know, I, I, I grew up in public housing, a single parent family. I didn't know what marketing was. I've somehow found my way into this and, and I've made a successful career out of it. But I look back at all of the people I grew up with that didn't have the stroke of luck or, or you know, I'm not going to kind of humble brag here, but yeah, I was, I was, I was a really bright kid. So, you know, I, I made some luck for myself as Andy would talk about. Um, but I also had luck and opportunity along the way to kind of find my way to where I am now. But I see so many people that are so much brighter than people that have had opportunities that are, that are, that are sitting in the spaces that they could really excel at. Didn't get the chance. So I, I, I love the fact that he does that as well. And um, I think probably my, my industry hero is Rob Schwartz, you know, kind of um, gone from being a creative at Shite Day, New York, to being the CEO and now the chairman of TVWA, Shite Day. And it's seeing a creative be able to do that, where we've got so many, so many kind of, I guess, accountants, if, if you want to be shitty about it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> people that are business people running the big agencies, the big network agencies, mm. to see a creative get there, make a difference. Uh, and it's just such an inspiration for me. So I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of Rob Schwartz. That's brilliant. I think those are all great tips and that's probably a nice place to, to wrap up. John, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome, James. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the On The Moment podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And to suggest a guest or provide feedback, please visit our dedicated podcast hub at ownthemomentpod.com. 